going to do things just a little bit different. We are different, right? Yeah. Um, I told you this series only started and on worship was just going to get better and better as we go along. So, Miss Sarah, I can't find you. There you are. Uh, come on up. Sarah Heller is going to um, kind of start us off this morning uh, with the word. These girls have a lot of scripture, so pay attention. This is going to go by quick. Good morning. I also wanted to say I got there too late to Rich, but while we were worshiping, in my mind's eye, if the whole, as if the Holy Spirit were honey, I could see the Lord dipping the honey stick down into the honey and pouring it over the church. And just while we worship every Sunday, just put that in your mind's eye that <clears throat> let that honey drip down, seep into these walls and drip onto you and let it just cover you. And that's just what I could see. So moving on. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Sarah. I have attended this church for about 27, 28 years. Um, I think I was, my brother and I were the first children at Praise Fellowship. Um, in 1996, we created a creative arts group called People of Praise, and the name was changed to Hearts of Praise, and we kept that name for the whole time we had the group. Our team created choreographed dances and flag routines for about 20 years. Um, Praise Fellowship's history is rich in creative arts. The majority of our visible worship here at PF was expressed through dance, flags and streamers, banners, they used to be hung all over around. <clears throat> it's true that Jesus is the only way to the Father for our salvation, but that isn't the case in worship. There are many ways to worship. Amen? God gives us his Holy Spirit and creative outlets to experience his presence, including the use of flags and streamers in worship. Waving flags and streamers is an extension of our worship. Early records show that in ancient battles, soldiers looked to flags and banners to determine the way, the direction of the wind, and then shot their arrows accordingly to reach their target. Flags and streamers put the enemy to flight. In Isaiah 59, verse 19, it says, From the west people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory. For he will come... 5919? That's not what I have. Maybe it's farther down. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. A standard is also known as a war flag. I didn't know if you knew that. I did not know that. So that verse could also be read, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a war flag against him. He is fighting for us. Webster's Dictionary, Rich. Their first definition of a standard is a conspicuous object, such as a banner, formerly carried at the top of a pole and used to mark a rallying point, especially in battle or to serve as an emblem. Flags and banners are a standard that displays God's truth. Truth and light cause the enemy to flee. Flags and banners can also be used in processions, declaring that, declaring the army of the Lord is a statement 
of war against the enemy. Banners rally the troops in war. Ephesians 6.12 says, Oh, Angelissa, I was going to have you come up while I read this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when, when we wave our flags, that can be a spiritual warfare in the heavenlies, you know, declaring that we have... Um, I lost my train of thought. Yes, we have victory over the enemy. Thank you. Raising a flag stirs unity and loyalty. Thanks, Jalissa. Flags can tell you who you represent. Each country flies their, their own flag, right? And if you see someone with a flag, you know exactly where they're from. Flags and banners can be used declare, to declare victory over spiritual warfare, like we just said. Banners and flags signal or attract tension to an event that is happening. If you see a flag outside of an event, you know what's going on. It usually displays what's going on. The banners and flags show victory won. They can also show the act of surrendering. A little white flag. Psalms 20, verse 5. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our, our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Song of Solomon 2.4 also said, His banner over me is love. Exodus 17.15 Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. Worshiping with flags remind us that the Lord is our banner and that he is close to us. Another way that um, we use flags is according to their color. For example, red. When we sing songs um, that represent the blood of Jesus, sacrifice, and love, we may fly, fly a red flag. Green. Green represents new life, growth, strength. Blue. Blue represents the Holy Spirit, Heaven, grace, and water. White represents holy, holiness, purity, Holy Spirit, and light. Silver represents redemption, righteousness, and wisdom. And then gold. Gold represents glory, honor, and majesty. And another Purple. Purple represents royalty, king, and power. God created us for worship, and within each one of us is a desire to worship him. John 4, 23 and 24 says, But the hour is coming and is now, when the true worshipers will, arrive, or will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. He wants us to worship him, and he's looking for true worshipers. So when you see the flags and streamers being waved and flown up on the stage like you have most recently, it's another expression of worship. It's a way of ushering in the Holy Spirit. It's a demonstration of worship to our God. It's intercession. It's spiritual warfare. And I like a mother 
this is m most important to me, it's teaching our kids that there's, one, there's more than one way to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you for letting your kids worship, because that's their expression. That's just their easiest way. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Jalissa. Um, kids, now you can be dismissed. I uh, just wanted you to hear that. It is so important to teach our next generation about worship. Amen? And there they all go. Uh, back in February of last year, I believe, um, we were just pleased and very honored to hear from Donna Adelgren. Donna has been um, here in the house for a long time. And when we were putting this worship series together, she said, absolutely, I will be a part of this, even though she told me she would never come up here and speak again. Um, so give Donna a warm welcome as she comes to speak to us. in Jamestown, the living Christmas tree. Do any of you remember that? That was us. That was us. We were known for our music. Um, but you know, I, I grew up with real confusion about worship because I was sitting back in, you know, our pews and I was watching this every Sunday and I was looking around me and man, we were good Swedes because what I saw was uh, maybe tears once in a while, but I never saw this. Uh, and, you know, this kind of thing? Oh, we never saw that. So, you know, my, I knew that we were created for worship. I knew that, I mean, my head knew, but somehow I didn't get it. It was like, as a kid, I remember thinking, is this worship thing anyway? I mean, is it like we have this egomaniac like up in the sky who's just requiring that we, you know, 
worship him? What, what is this? And so fast forward a few years, and Brian and I come into the doors of Praise Fellowship for the very first time. And I saw relax. <coughs> Can I tell you I was freaked out? I was totally freaked out. I not only saw flags, we saw people dancing. We saw processions up through the aisles. We saw some guy, I think his name was Rich Gear, <laughs> gave a word in tongues. And my goodness, I, I, if, have you ever heard of a split personality? That, that was me because my brain was over here going and my heart was over here going ah, ah, something in me knows this is real something in me needs this something in me needs this and can I tell you I mean Brian and I came back the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday but it took me a long time for my brain and my heart, oh, I need this to do this. You know, and when it did, I began to realize something about authentic worship. I began to realize that God is a lot smarter than me. <laughs> and, and I began to realize that there was something he knew about we humans. And he understands us so well. That if there were a title that I was going to give to what I want to say this morning, that title would be, We Become What We Behold. Think about that for a moment. Now, I know that's not a Bible verse, and I think it was, you know, like an 18th century English poet who first coined that phrase, but think about that for a moment. We become what we behold. And I would like to suggest for me, first for me, and for all of us, that worship establishes who our first love really is and how important that is for you and for me and how it's becoming increasingly more important. I'd like, I'm asking for you to give me some grace this morning because I want to get really real with you. And I want to ask you a question. How many of us would agree that we are probably in the last days? Would, would you agree with that? I think, you know, I, I'm not here to debate prophecies or anything. You know, whether it happens this afternoon or whether it's next week or whether it's 100 years from now, doesn't really matter. I think that we're in the last days and it's really, really, really important that I know, not just my brain that wants to go but my heart, who our first love really is. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about the last days. I want to read a passage 
um, from Matthew 24, beginning with verse 3. If we can bring that up. Jesus was talking with his disciples. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And I believe it was in Luke that Jesus also added pestilence and plagues. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will, list me and will mislead many. And here's the verse I want us to look at this morning. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I don't know about you, but for me, that is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Most people's love will grow cold. The verses that I just read, does any of this sound familiar? <coughs> Wars and rumors of war. Nation against nation. Famines. Earthquakes. Pestilence. Plagues. And are we seeing lawlessness increase? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. All you have to do is turn on the news, and we see lawlessness everywhere. You know, lawlessness, uh, our, our civic laws being flouted, God's laws being flouted every, everywhere we look. And, you know, as we see lawlessness increase, pandemics, lockdowns, natural disasters, society seeming out of control, you know, political craziness, inflation, economic uncertainty. Church, what has this done to our stress levels? I'm suggesting we live in unprecedented times. We live with unprecedented stress, even trauma. You know, there's a well-documented uh, response to trauma in the psychological world called fight or flight. You ever heard of that? Fight or flight. Fight is when I feel threatened, so adrenaline kicks in and I go on the attack. I'm going to take you out. 
or its opposite extreme is flight. I feel threatened, so I'm out of here. I'm gone. I quit. I'd like to suggest that much of what we see around us today, both out there and inside the church, is protracted, ongoing response to trauma. <coughs> Prolonged trauma creates not only crushing stress, but triggers impulsive, often irrational behaviors. Have any of us had the, you know, we, we were thinking about something and we have a train of thought and then it's gone? You know, we have a hard time hanging on to our thought processes. Okay, so for me, that's probably my age. But, but I think that it's bigger than that. I think that we're all laboring under a great deal of stress. And I think that it's not just out there. I think we see it in our churches, in our families. Fight. I feel threatened, so I'm going on the attack. Increasing violence everywhere. Divisiveness in the church. Divisiveness. Political divisiveness. I don't agree with you, so I'm mad at you. We've suffered under quarantine in the church. Masks, no masks. Vaccine, no vaccine. It's done this. Or we're also seeing the whole flight syndrome. I feel threatened, so I'm checking out. Have you heard of the great resignation? People quitting, quitting their jobs. There's no, no, nothing in sight. They're just, they're quitting. Or maybe even worse than that, quiet quitting. People show up, but they don't show up. We see addictive behaviors on the rise. Not only with substances and drugs, but things like internet surfing, phone surfing, media binging. Guilty. Guilty. In the church, record numbers of people are leaving, checking out, abandoning their faith, pastors quitting, or succumbing to temptation and moral failure. And you know, ask any church leader about volunteerism, and they'll tell you. Man, it's tough to get people to do anything. Praise Fellowship. I believe that it's so important that we recognize the season that we're in. And we all recognize that there is a battle being waged. We see it out there every day. But the real target, it's right here. The real target is our hearts. Make no mistake about it. The enemy of our souls has his arrows pointed directly at your heart and at mine. 
and his strategy is either to inflame us toward one another or get us to lay down and quit. You know, the Greek imagery of the phrase we just read a few minutes ago in verse 12, the love of most will grow cold. That it's, it's, very, it's, it's very interesting. The Greek phrase, grow cold, has to do with respiration. It has to do with cold breath. You know how, like, when your coffee is too hot and you blow on it to cool it off? Love turned cold, frozen. What do you think that looks like? On the one extreme, it's hatred and anger. Now, I'm not talking about righteous anger that seeks to right a wrong and that, um, that works for righteous justice. I'm talking about anger that is fueled by hatred. Hatred that becomes obsessed with finding blame and judging and punishing. And then at the other extreme, one Christian author, who's also a therapist, he has called it the great desolation, and he sees it everywhere, all over the world. Christians are giving up. They're quitting. I, I, I just want life to be good again. I, I, I don't, I don't want to be engaged. And what does all this have to do with worship? I, I think it has everything to do with worship. You know, the word translated as worship occurs, I think, over 170 times in the Bible. And it's either usually used to, uh, about worshiping God or about worshiping idols. And in the Old Testament, the word is shalkah. And in the New Testament, the word is proskuneho. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Proskuneho. It's from pros, which means moving toward, and kuneo, which is actually kiss. And the meanings for both the Old Testament and the New Testament words translated as worship are very, very similar. This is what it is. To prostrate, prostrate oneself to bow down, to do obeisance, show reverence, do homage, worship, adore. Were any of you here last week when Pastor Peter was here? He talked a lot about, sac about worship as sacrifice. And he talked about where the very first instance of the word worship comes in the Bible. You know, some theologians refer to, refer to this as the law of first mention, and they tell us that that has particular significance because if you study this passage, it often helps us to understand the word most simply and most clearly. Well, the first instance of the word worship in the Old Testament is with the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I'd like to read 
part of that passage with us this morning and talk about that, unpack it a little bit more because I think it has real significance. I know it does for me. In Genesis 22, beginning with verse 1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Think about that. He traveled for three days, knowing in his heart what God was asking him to do. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Then Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Can I just tell you, can I be honest with you? I need to understand this message. You know, it's like a, a, a loving God asking Abraham to kill his own son, his only son. What, what's up with that, God? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lamb and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. And since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place 
the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You know, I think oftentimes we over-spiritualize people in the Bible. You know, Abraham was a man, just like many of us here. He was a parent. I'm a parent. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Abraham, how long had Abraham waited for this child of promise? 25 years he had waited and hoped and, and, and envisioned what it might be like. Do you think that Abraham's love for his son Isaac may have become a little bit protective? a little bit clingy, a little bit, you know, I hate to admit it, but as a parent, what I love my children so much, but I don't always do what's healthy for them. Don't always do what's right for them because I want to fix things. I want my kids not to feel pain. I want my kids control. I want to control them. You know, I think that something needed to die on Mount Moriah that day, but it wasn't Isaac. I suggest to you it was something in Abraham. And I suggest to you that this whole testing thing, it wasn't because God needed to know if Abraham loved him the most. It was because Abraham needed to know that he loved God the most. You know, I think that those three days that Abraham traveled to Mount Moriah, I think he was battling with himself. I think he knew that something in himself was possibly short-circuiting God's plans for his blessing to come through Abraham and his lineage. I think that he knew he needed to let go of his grasping love for his son and establish, really reestablish his love for God as the first love of his heart. And he needed to do that by getting low and surrendering, by worshiping. I think there was a, tr a transaction that took place that day on Mount Moriah. As Abraham bowed low in surrender, I think he came back up with his heart right. 
and with the strength to follow through with God's purposes. Kind of reminds me of another transaction in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I find it very interesting that at the end of this passage that we just read, after Abraham got his heart right again, then God was able to establish, re-establish the blessings he intended to bring to Abraham and ultimately to the whole world. I think Abraham wasn't ready. He might have been a father to Isaac, wasn't ready to be a father to the whole world. Some of you may have been wondering about this oil lamp up here this morning. Do you remember the passage we read a few minutes ago from Matthew 24 when Jesus was talking about the signs of the end of the age? Well, that conversation continued in chapter 25. And in chapter 25, Jesus talks about the parable of the ten virgins. And I'd like to read this for us. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in their flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, do we ever feel like the bridegroom is delaying? They all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose, they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. You know, throughout the Bible, oil signifies the presence of God. And the anointing or the equipping of God for service. We see it with the priests in the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons. We see it with the Jewish kings, all anointed with oil, set apart, set aside for the service that God had intended for them. And then in the New Testament, Jesus, the anointed one, stood up in the temple and he said, 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Luke 4, 18, 19. Here's my question to us this morning. It's my question to me. What or who is filling our lamps? Is the oil of God's presence in me? And how prudent, how intentional am I being to make sure I have the oil needed to last until the bridegroom comes? You know, I'm making all kinds of noise, aren't I? Sorry. Worship is many, many things. But when you boil it all down, worship is about emptying myself. Letting go of all the things that tear at me and grasp for my attention to establish and reestablish, and reestablish, and establish again who my first love really is. And it's only as I empty myself that God is able to fill me with himself. Letting his love flow into the dark, and messy places, the unconverted parts of my heart to heal me, to comfort me, to soothe me, to calm me, to get my priorities right and correct me, to strengthen me, to anoint me so that I can begin to attain to a love that's a lot bigger than me. So that his plans and his purposes can be accomplished through me. We become what we behold, people. And you know, What's the purpose of an oil lamp anyway? Isn't it to give light? Isn't it to shine light into the places that are dark? Isn't it to light the way? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That just blows me away. I need the light of life. I need it for me. But you know, it's not just for me. Because Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Praise fellowship. This is the worship place. And our DNA has always been that we are to be a light that shines in the darkness. But you know, my heart is so easily, the passions of my heart or the lack of the passions of my heart are so easily distorted, even perverted. We need not just on Sunday mornings when we come here. Pastor Peter said it last week. He said, this is a celebration. This, this, is, this is wonderful and this is awesome, but you know what? Real worship happens on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. Real worship is all about who is on the altar of my heart because it is out of my heart that I'm either a light or I feed the darkness or become part of it. And so, as you can see, the worship team is up here again because they're going to sing that last song again about being a fire. As we end the service this morning, like Abraham, we need to make sure that it is God is our first love. And Brian, I'm going to ask you, you're standing in the back, can we dim the lights again so that we can see? we can see the light shining in the darkness and know that this right here, this is so important. It is so important. <laughs>